Welcome to the Love and Light Live podcast, empowering crystal lovers and spiritual entrepreneurs to learn and experience the art of crystal healing. Get ready to listen in and join our crystal movement. Hello, and thank you so much for joining me for the Love and Light Live podcast brought to you by loveandlightschool.com. I'm your host, Ashley Levy, and this podcast is the number one place for all things crystals. In today's show, we have a very super extra special episode for you because it's combining two of my most favorite things. We are going to talk about healing crystals in the wizarding world of Harry Potter. So if you're not a Harry Potter fan, I promise there's still going to be some amazing information and insight in this episode. But if you are, this is going to be a super special treat because we are releasing this episode on July 31st, which of course is Harry Potter's birthday and also J.K. Rowling's birthday. And I am doing this episode today uh, co-hosted with the amazing Lauren Gandarva. So Lauren, thank you so much for doing this with me. Yay. Of course, you had to include me in this. You know, I'm like the biggest Harry Potter fan of all time besides you. So this was definitely a good thing to do today. I don't know. I think you might even have me beat in terms of like <laughs> Potter fandom. I yeah, didn't I'm, get into these books until like I was an adult. Um, people kept telling me about them and telling me about them. And my younger brother read them when we were kids. And I just, I think I thought I was like too old and too cool for that. Cause I'm a couple years older than you. So they came out when I was a little bit older. So, yeah. but you started reading these when you were a kid, right? Yeah. It's been like a lifelong companion and I still read it. I, every time I still read them, I like every year I do a reread and I just feel like I'm spending time with like old friends because yeah, I was in sixth grade. So I was like, maybe 11. And our teacher in sixth grade, our English teacher actually read the first book to us. And then that same year, the first movie came out, I think. So my whole family went to see it. It was so special. And then it's just been like a lifelong passion since that time. Yeah. Talk about magical. That's pretty cool. Like I wish I would have had a little bit more of that, like childhood involvement with it, because it is this thing. It's so filled with wonder and so filled with magic and it totally transports you to this other world. And I would say I probably reread the books, um, at least once a year. And then I also have all the audio books and this is like a weird thing to admit out loud to people that are listening, but I listen to the audio books literally every night when I go to sleep. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> My husband and I, it's like, I always, I have this thing where I read for 30 minutes every night, no matter what. So I'll read my book for 30 minutes and my husband kind of starts to fall asleep and then I'll put on a Harry Potter audiobook. And like, I always remember where I fell asleep, like what part. So then I'll, I'll go back, you know, I'll put the sleeping <laughs> on and I'll go back in case I missed anything, even if it was just a little bit. And I'll just listen to these stories. And it's so, like you said, it's like being with friends. It's so comforting. And the stories are just phenomenal. If you think that you're too old for Harry Potter, too cool for Harry Potter. It is not true. <laughs> it is not true. There is no one who is too cool or too, too anything for Harry Potter. They're so like complex and the world within them is so complex. There are still podcasts going on 15 years later that just have so much content. It's crazy. Like there's just so much to analyze still. And every time I reread them after, you know, reading them so many dozens of times, I still pick up on stuff that I had never noticed before. It's just endless. Yeah, that's really true. Even like if I go back and watch the movies, I always see like something else from the books that I missed in the movies, like a little detail. And I'm like, oh, they did that in the movie. How cute is that? Even if like it's nothing that's even talked about. Like, okay, like one thing I just watched, for example, okay, we were watching The Order of the Phoenix and 
when they get to Grimwald Place and uh, Tonks is like super clumsy and mm-hmm. trips over the troll foot umbrella stand. <laughs> like that really happens in the movie. And it's this second, like, or two seconds of film, but mm-hmm. it made me really smile because it's yeah. a special little thing. So yeah. The, the little things are what make Harry Potter what it is. It's like this, all these millions of tiny details and it's just so magical. Yeah. And I have to say, so you brought up like, there are tons of other podcasts and stuff all about Harry Potter. Like Lauren and I both listen to MuggleCast, which is created by the founders of MuggleNet. And so we, yeah, listen to that pretty religiously. And I listened to the most recent episode right before we're recording this just to get caught up and like super excited. And I was telling Lauren and she said she was listening to it yesterday. Yeah. A muggle cast is my favorite thing like on earth. I cannot miss an episode. And the episodes are pretty long. They're like over an hour each, but I, yeah, it's my absolute favorite podcast on earth. Yeah. It's like like the weekly treat, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I've been listening to it for so long. Like I remember 10 years ago, religiously listening to the episodes and it's just like this never ending (laughs) goodness. Yeah. They just said in uh, the episode that just came out that this is the 20th anniversary of MuggleNet, which is crazy. And then I think they mentioned that the podcast is like 15 years old almost. Yeah. Yeah. At least it's, that's amazing. Can't believe it. Anyway. So, okay. So normally in our podcast, we have three different segments. We have our ask me anything segment and our main segment, and then we have our trending this week segment. But because we're doing a very, very special wizarding world themed episode, we thought we'd do three totally different segments, all kind of celebrating the beautiful, amazing world of Harry Potter. So in our first segment today, we're going to be talking about wizarding crystals. So these are crystals that actually appear in the books and films. We're going to talk a little bit about them as J.K. Rowling has presented them. And then Lauren and I are just going to have kind of an impromptu discussion about maybe why J.K. decided to include each of these in the ways that she did. Then we are going into a deep dive discussion on crystals for the Hogwarts houses, which Lauren has like so passionately put together for everyone. (laughs) I can't wait to hear what she has to say. And then we're going to round it out with some extra crystals that we think would be really beneficial for anyone who wants to kind of tap into the fun, exciting, magical world of Harry Potter. Yes. Oh, it's going to be, it's going to be the best episode. (laughs) So, okay, let's go ahead and get started with our actual wizarding crystals segment. So these are the crystals that JK Rowling actually includes in the series of books. There's also a couple extra little tidbits in here that came straight from Pottermore. So not from the books themselves, but from JK's kind of little expanded universe. Um, And I could not for the life of me decide on what order to tackle these in. So I went for alphabetical. (laughs) (laughs) That's, that's kind of going to be my approach. So I'm going to start with amethyst. And this is like a weird one to start with, especially because it's not specifically called out in the books. But J.K. Rowling talks about a pointed purple crystal that was among the protective devices being sold among the students of Hogwarts during the 1992 to 93 school year. And these were being sold to the students to protect against the monster that had been unleashed in the Chamber of Secrets, which we all know, spoilers, was a basilisk. So it was said that Neville Longbottom actually purchased one of these crystals from one of the other students, which is so funny because Neville was, of course, actually a pureblood wizard. So why would he need 
protection from Slytherin's monster. But I was kind of trying to guess at what this pointed purple crystal could have been. And it would just make sense that it's amethyst, right? Because there aren't that many purple crystals that are actually pointed or terminated. And I thought, okay, if I were picking kind of a protective crystal, especially a spiritually protective crystal, like it might be amethyst. What do you think? Would, would that be your guess too? I completely agree. And I actually just reread book two. I finished it last week and I'm already rereading book three again. <laughs> it's just like never ending. But yeah, I read that part. Um, so they're selling all these like amulets. I think they're selling some kind of ridiculous like garlic. I don't even remember. I'm sure the Weasley twins were in on that, but they're selling all this stuff. Um, and Neville purchases like this, a few things. And that was one of them. So I don't know what other purple crystal would have a termination um, that would be kind of used in an, like in, as an amulet, as a protective crystal against something like a basilisk. And of course they make fun of it. It's kind of supposed to be a funny moment where they're using these things, but I, I definitely think it's amethyst, no doubt about it. Yeah. And I mean, there has to be like some merit to it although they do talk about like this whole time and then also in later books too where people start to get like more and more afraid once people realize that Voldemort has come back there's all these like really bogus protective amulets and charms being sold that really don't do anything but I feel like in in this instance like the students, they really believe that these things are going to keep them safe. You know, I mean, there's a reason that they're buying them and they're coming from this like place of feeling afraid and feeling like they need protection. And I think this is one thing that is also like really true in our own lives. We sometimes feel like there's something that's beyond our control and we need some support and we need some protection. And whether we reach for an amethyst or a hematite crystal or a black tourmaline, like we reach for those things because they're comforting. They make us feel better. Like crystals are such a comfort. And I just think like, I love Neville so much. He's one of my favorite characters. And I just feel like, of course, like if anybody were going to be open to crystals, I feel like it would be Neville and Luna. And so, yes. <laughs> and so I love that Neville's like willing to give this a try. And yeah, I just thought that was pretty cool. So we're both in agreement. We think it's Amethyst, but I'd be curious if you're listening, pop over to the comments at loveandlightschool.com slash blog and let us know if you have a different idea about what this mystery purple pointed crystal just might be. So next up, we have another kind of non-specific crystal here. I'm going to assume that it's clear quartz, but we have the crystal ball, which of course is a major part of divination class in the books and the movies. So the crystal balls, of course, are used by seers. They're these magical spheres, which can be gazed into in the art of crystallomancy, which is a form of gazing or scrying into a crystal. And Professor Trelawney, Sybil Trelawney, introduces all the third year students to the crystal ball in the 1994 school year. Um, but most everybody thinks that this is kind of bogus. Of course, we have like Lavender who's super into them, but Harry and Ron kind of make fun of this a lot and they're really not into it. And of course, Hermione goes even further than that. And she just thinks like this should not even be included in school subjects. She's really, really not into it. But Professor Chalani kind of goes into this and says that, um, you know, your success with the crystal ball really relies on your ability to relax your conscious mind and external eyes so as to perceive clearly with the inner eye and the super conscious. So this is like straight out of the book. And she like it, she kind of implies that if you're unable to do this, then you're not going to see anything except white fog in the crystal ball. So Lauren, I know that like you are such an amazing intuitive person. You do scrying, you work with tarot cards. 
Like, how does this kind of measure up to your experience with crystal gazing? Oh, it's completely on point. And this is like one of the bones I have to pick with the Harry Potter series, which I don't have a lot of those, but I just reread this part and it's my favorite thing ever. I feel like Professor Trelawney is like who I aspire to be in life. And that's so crazy, but she's amazing and no one gets her and they all think she's crazy except like Lavender and um, a few other students. But yeah, it's this like thing that just sounds so crazy to people. Like you're going to look in a crystal ball and see the future. Yeah, right. You're going to look at tarot cards and see the future. Not going to happen. But it's just this intuitive thing. And when you can relax your mind and kind of trust these messages that sound totally crazy to other people, but these messages come through for a reason. And I think when you can relax that conscious, logical part of your brain, when you're looking into a crystal ball or when you're looking at tea leaves, clouds, whatever you want to do for your divination, um, these beautiful messages come true and or come through and you don't have to really have like logical validation for those. You just kind of start to trust it at some point. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's very true. And, you know, I think that the, the whole part about relaxing your conscious mind is a big part of it because you can't have like your ego mind, your conscious mind, second guessing you all the time and telling you that what you're seeing isn't really there or isn't real. Um, and, and so it just becomes really interesting that, you know, Professor Trelawney does have success. She does make successful, accurate predictions in these books, albeit only a couple of them, <laughs> um, but she really does. And one thing that I think is really interesting here is that like Trelawney is portrayed as this character who's always kind of spouting prophecies of doom and gloom, right? So not just in Harry's instance um, or in Harry's case, but like even when Umbridge asks her to just give a prediction, she says, I, you know, I see that you're in like great danger. Like Mm -hmm. it's always kind of doom and gloom. And I think this is a history that's associated with the crystal ball. In fact, a lot of people I think are still apprehensive or nervous about opening up to different divinatory practices because they're afraid that the messages are going to be bad. Mm -hmm. And like, at least in my experience of like working with a lot of different readers at the store, my store, Mimosa Books and Gifts, and and just from people that I know in my circle, like this is not at all what it's really like. So if um, Trelawney has kind of made you a little bit more nervous or made you feel like this is really what it's like all the time, I would say that's not the case. It's just more part of her specific character. But I do think that there's this kind of like mass consciousness belief that's kind of been programmed into a lot of us to think of like, that image of, you know, the woman with the crystal ball, who's like very mysterious and has all these scary things to tell us. And it's really not like that in real life. Yeah, completely. It's so much more about divination is so much more about the present moment and about mindfulness and extenuating circumstances that are happening with your current energies than about predicting the future. And I realized that obviously JK Rowling had to make that as a plot point and it works for Professor Trelawney, but in reality, it's not a scary thing at all. It's just about seeing what's happening in your life and all the energies that are happening at that time. So yeah, absolutely. And so like 99% of the time, these crystal balls are made of quartz. There are modern ones that are made of glass as well. And in fact, I think the ones that they use in the movie props do just look like glass um, because Mm -hmm. they're totally flawlessly clear. And normally you would have a little bit of inclusions or wisps or veils from the natural quartz crystal. But obviously the flawlessly clear natural quartz is kind of what was always sought after. And in fact, this is like such an ancient practice and it was something that a lot of major historical figures really relied on as well. For example, Queen Elizabeth had John Dee, 
who mm-hmm. was an amazing divinatory practitioner, and he used a scrying mirror, which is also mentioned very, very briefly um, in the book series. But he also has this crystal ball, and it's still on display in the British Museum. And these are like major, major power pieces. And there are actually two other minor references to crystal balls in the books that I totally never even noticed. So in the 1992 school year, when Harry was in Diagon Alley, there's mention of a healer that kept what appeared to be a crystal ball on her desk. So I found this really interesting because we have here not someone who's described as a seer, which the word seer is kind of referred to several times um, in the wizarding world, but specifically this person is referred to as a healer. And so it just made me kind of think about the ways that a healer might use a crystal ball in the wizarding world. And I was trying to kind of like wrap my mind around that. What would that look like? Yeah, I've never noticed that part. That's so interesting. I'll have to go back and look for that. But yeah, that's I mean, that's kind of what we teach crystal balls, um, how to, how to work with crystal balls at our school, of course, is for healing sessions. So I'd love to know what that person was doing in the Harry Potter series with it. Yeah. It just made me like question that and think about that. Like, oh, like there are so many things I would love for JK to write as like side stories. Like I want to know more about this. Oh, for sure. So many things. And then, okay, so the, then the other mention, and this is something I definitely never, ever, ever noticed. And this is, I don't think mentioned in the books, but it was in the film version of Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. Um, Dolores Umbridge in her beautiful, crazy pink office with all the cats and teacups and little flowers and everything, right? So she has all those plates with the different kittens on the walls. And two of the plates on the wall have kittens with a crystal ball. What? I have never seen that. I honestly haven't watched the movies that much, but I've never seen that. I love that though. Yeah. I don't know who like found these like most amazing details. <laughs> well, <laughs> like who watched and looked at every one of those kitten plates to see what was going on. <laughs> but they say at least two of the kitten plates are, are like showing kittens with crystal balls. And it made me kind of think about Dolores Umbridge as a character. And like, I feel like she would be someone that probably gives a little bit more credence to divination than she might like to let on. But I could see her being the type to take that very seriously. Yes. Oh, that is so true. I have clients like that a lot who are like in their, you know, outfacing world, they'd be like, oh, this is all made up. It's just like, I don't know, it makes no sense. It's not real. But then they're like, oh, please let me get another reading. Tell me everything you know. (laughs) secretly having tarot cards called for like every major life decision. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Happens all the time. That's interesting about Umbridge. I've never thought of that, but yeah, I agree. Yeah. Kind of a neat thing. Okay. Yes. So next we finally have like our first actual crystal that is truly named and that is the diamond. So diamonds actually come up several times throughout the series. So there's a really minor mention um, to diamonds in the 1996 school year. So Fred and George, after they've become kind of somewhat successful with their joke shop, they give their mom for Christmas a midnight blue witch's hat with little stones that look like tiny star-like diamonds. And of course, we're like looking at this scene from Harry's perspective and Harry's not an expert on crystals and gemstones. So all he can do is think that they look like diamonds. But I'm guessing with like the success that Fred and George have had in their shop and kind of maybe feeling a little bit of guilt for like what handfuls they've been their whole life, they want to do something so nice for Molly Weasley and give her like this really, really amazing gift, especially because they come from a family that 
doesn't like have a lot of money and this is their chance to do something so kind for their mom. And so giving her this blue witch's hat with these glittering gemstones on it. I bet that they are diamonds. I would like to think that they are. I think they are too. I think that's so in character with Fred and George. That's so something they would do. They would do anything for their mom by that point. And yeah, they could definitely get a hat with some diamonds on it. (laughs) Yeah. So then I was thinking, okay, from the metaphysical standpoint, like why would diamonds be sewn into this hat? And I thought, well, diamonds, like they connect to the crown chakra. They're all about mental clarity. Um, They're about spiritual growth and ascension. So it makes sense for them to be in a hat, like right up near your crown chakra. So I always think of like crystals when they're set in jewelry, like what's the placement going to be like and how are these going to be incorporated into our energy field? And I feel like to be in a witch's hat, which is for like such a long time been a symbol of a witch or wizard themselves. And if we see that pointed hat, we know exactly what it means, you know? And I feel like Mm -hmm. that that would be like kind of a, the perfect placement for the diamond. Yeah, especially in um, A Witch's Hat for Molly Weasley because she's such a mom and she's so selfless. She has, I don't even, I lost count of how many children there are in that family, but (laughs) she's so selfless and she does so much for her kids. And, but she's also like tough as nails in that final scene at the Battle of Hogwarts where, you know, I don't want to let out too many spoilers, but some very amazing stuff happens. That's like, (laughs) yeah, that is Molly Weasley's stone, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I love that you said tough as nails. Cause that is very much like a diamond. So that's yes. hardest stone. So yeah. yeah. So, okay. So another fancy headpiece that contains diamonds is aunt Muriel's tiara. If you don't remember aunt Muriel, because she's kind of somewhat a passing character, especially in the movies, but she's talked about a lot more deeply in the books, I guess, than in the movies. So aunt Muriel is Molly Weasley's aunt And diamonds and moonstones, which we'll talk about in a little bit, were both set into Muriel's tiara. And Muriel actually loans this tiara, which is a goblin-made piece of jewelry, to Fleur Delacour um, for her wedding to Molly Weasley's son, Bill Weasley. So Fleur gets to wear this amazing, gorgeous diamond and moonstone studded tiara on her wedding day. And so I was thinking, okay, that makes sense. Like diamonds are so traditionally associated with weddings. And a lot of that has to do with their hardness and their durability and that they last forever. Diamonds are forever. So it's like a metaphor for our relationships lasting forever or our marriages lasting forever. And so it's really special that Floor would get to wear something like this, especially because she's had kind of a rocky relationship with Molly and some of the other family members up until this point. And she still doesn't even kind of really prove herself until a little bit later on um, when Bill has a major injury, which I won't give too many spoilers about that. But it's kind of one of those things that I think is like, uh, maybe like a little bit of foreshadowing that floor is actually going to stick around because diamonds are forever. And I don't know, maybe that's only because I know what I know later of their relationship. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. And actually I think that part with bill happens before the wedding though. Right. Cause I think her and Molly kind of get on the same page a little bit, but it's so beautiful that she gets to wear that like classic family timepiece. That's obviously so sacred to them because it's a goblin made and then the moonstones with the diamonds, it just brings that really mystical element um, to and their so relationship. Feminine. Yeah, so feminine, so gentle, so loving. I just, I really like that scene. Yeah. And then, of course, the major way that diamonds are kind of showcased several times throughout the books are that they are the crystals or gemstones that fill the Hufflepuff 
house points hourglass at Hogwarts. So JK actually in a Twitter conversation went more specifically and said that, you know, these are definitely yellow diamonds, of course, being one of the colors of Hufflepuff. And a lot of people kind of discount yellow diamonds in like modern society because everyone obviously is looking for the brilliant, perfectly clear, you know, everything is graded and crazy that way when it comes to diamonds, but yellow diamonds in their own right are so beautiful. And I just love that Hufflepuff gets like the diamond, which is the most durable, most valuable, because I think that Hufflepuffs get kind of like overlooked in a lot of other ways. Yeah. I actually did not know that. I'm learning more about Harry Potter just from this like research you found. I didn't know that. And that makes so much sense because Hufflepuffs are so like understated all the time. And so for them to have the most expensive like gemstone on earth, (laughs) that's kind of amazing. Yeah. I honestly, uh, I would have assumed that they were yellow sapphires. Yeah. I I haven't really thought about it, but yeah. Maybe like topaz. I don't know. Topaz. Yeah. I think I had topaz in my mind. Yeah. But JK says definitely yellow diamonds. And I'm like, oh, that's amazing. Good job. You guys deserve it. (laughs) (laughs) So next we have emeralds, which this is really interesting. So emeralds have kind of a tenuous history. Like sometimes they're thought of as being a little bit unlucky. There are several different emeralds um, that are in our actual real world that people think are cursed, similar to like how people think the hope diamond is cursed. Um, And so it's really interesting that emeralds are the gemstone that are used to fill the Slytherin house points hourglass. So associated with Slytherin house. Um, And of course they're green, so they kind of match the color of the serpent. It seems like a natural kind of um, pairing or partnership between Slytherins and the green emeralds. And then the other place that we see potentially an emerald is in Salazar Slytherin's locket. So this was a piece of jewelry that was owned by Salazar Slytherin and became a family heirloom, went down in possession through the generations until it reached the Gaunt family and Marvolo Gaunt. um, And then later um, his son, Morphin and he were sent to Azkaban. There was like the whole big thing. And basically Marvolo's daughter ends up with the locket and sells it to Burke of Borgen and Burks um, for a really, really, really cheap price to try and kind of support herself, give herself a little bit of money uh, while she is pregnant with or just had Tom Riddle. And eventually, of course, we know that that kind of comes back into the possession of Tom Riddle at a later time. Um, But they just mentioned that there are these green stones. So these green glittering stones inlaid on the front of the locket in the shape of an S, which looks kind of like a serpent, but also would stand for the S of Slytherin. And they're all embedded in this heavy gold locket. So interesting that you have emeralds, which are, again, the color of snakes and many snakes, that kind of green color we kind of associate with snakes, but also that, you know, a lot of emeralds are believed to be cursed or a little bit evil. And we have them here associated with Slytherin House. Yeah, that's so interesting about emerald because it is such a beautifully healing stone um, for work with love, self-love, the heart chakra, all that stuff. But it is also that sort of dangerous edge to it as well. So I like that that's associated with Slytherin. Yeah. And, and like you mentioned, yeah, like a heart chakra stone, which is so interesting, but it's, it, it kind of makes sense in a way, because if you think about like Lord Voldemort, his whole thing is that 
he has not accepted love into his life in any way, right? So he has like, if you want to talk about a closed heart chakra, I think (laughs) has some heart chakra issues he needs to deal with. I feel like, yeah, he is like kind of gone the total polar opposite of what Emerald has the potential to do, but Mm -hmm. it's almost like he's rejected that, you know, he's chosen to reject that in his life. Yeah. Yes. Oh my God. I'm going to remember that the rest of my life that Voldemort has a blocked heart chakra. (laughs) It makes you like feel a little bit bad for him almost, doesn't it? Yeah. We could just get him into the, like to a healing session. We could really help Voldemort. We can just do some (laughs) crystal healing on him. That's all he needs. He just needs a little bit of love, a little bit of positive (laughs) energy. Okay, so next, we are jumping from Emerald all the way down to Moonstone. So I already mentioned Moonstone was one of the stones that was set in Aunt Muriel's tiara, which this is really makes a lot of sense, right? So Floor is wearing this tiara on her wedding day with these really, really feminine Moonstone crystals. This is like, I think if you're getting married, this is like a day where you just want to feel like so beautiful and so wonderful and Moonstones are such an amazing thing to do that, but moonstones are also associated with fertility. So I was thinking about the implications of wearing moonstone on your wedding night. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, That might've not been an accident because Molly Weasley and Aunt Muriel strike me as women who would immediately push for grandchildren. Yeah, I think so too. They probably have one of those like fertility blankets that a lot of old people will give their children, you know, for their wedding night. It's probably like inlaid with moonstones as well. Yes. I I wouldn't be surprised. (laughs) So a little bit of magic that way. And what's super interesting about that whole tiara situation is that Bill and Fleur like accidentally have it for a while because obviously the wedding gets quite interrupted. Yeah, for the reception, I suppose. And so they don't get this tiara returned to Aunt Muriel for a long time to the point where she thinks that maybe they've stolen it and like just haven't said, which I thought was kind of, I don't know, not very nice of Aunt Muriel. She should know Bill better than that. But (laughs) anyway, that's that's another story. So moonstones also come up um, again related to this idea of love because they are powdered and used as an ingredient in several love potions, which is pretty interesting. And in fact, um, Snape in the 1995 school year forces Harry and the other potion student to write a 12 inch parchment on the properties of Moonstone and its usage in potion making. Do you remember that homework assignment? Yes, I totally remember that. And that's so interesting because like of all the stones that JK Rowling could have chosen um, to kind of be associated with that scene and with Snape. Snape obviously is such an evil character for the first like six books. And then we find this whole backstory about his intense love for Lily Potter. Uh, so it just kind of, it's it kind of draws on that like feminine side of Snape, that softer side that obviously we never see for so long until the final book. But it really accentuates like that beautiful part of his personality. Yeah. And there's, there is so much love there. So really interesting that it's used in love potions, but um, JK Rowling also says that powdered moonstone is an ingredient in the draft of peace, which is supposed to be a potion that helps relieve anxiety and agitation. And I found this really interesting because I have a few crystals that are always my go-tos for anxiety. This is something I struggle on and off with like all the time, but 
I always go to Lapidolite and Aquamarine. And every once in a while, when that combo isn't working out or it doesn't seem like the right fit, my next choice is Moonstone. There's mm-hmm. something so like soothing and calming about it. And I was like, JK, where are you getting your info? Because she is pulling in some great information <laughs> into the implications of these crystals. Yeah. So one of the ingredients for this potion for anxiety. That's fantastic. That's so useful. And yeah, did she have like a crystal advisor during these books or did she just know this stuff? I wonder who was helping her with that. You know, she pulled on so much information, like actual historical information. I watched this documentary once that talked about how she used to go spend all this time at libraries, like reading about the occult and about like ancient mystical and metaphysical traditions. And she soaked up so much knowledge from doing that, that a lot of what she writes about in Harry Potter is either like very, very, very closely linked to something that we do have in our own magical history in our world, in our muggle world, or it's something that she kind of based on that, but adapted and changed to kind of fit her story a little bit. Yeah, that's amazing. I really love that, that she took the time to actually learn about some occult things that are important to us. Uh, in our actual spiritual practices of magic. So that's that's really cool that she included that there. Yeah, it was it was pretty neat. Um, okay, so next crystal, we have opal. So this is one of my favorites, I think, um, because I think it's so closely related with our current kind of lore and history of opal. So in our world, there are so many people that view opal as being unlucky. And in fact, it was said that like, Opal was often given as a gift by husbands to their wives that they wanted to like drive mad so that they would be able to leave them or so that they would mysteriously vanish or die, which is a crazy thing. But this has happened like all throughout history in many different cultures and is associated with opal. So of course, then the biggest thing that comes to mind for me at least is the opal necklace, which is the cursed object that was uh, for sale at Borgen and Burke's and was claimed to have taken the life of 19 muggles and was used by Draco Malfoy in a really lame attempt to try and assassinate Dumbledore by mm-hmm. giving it to Katie Bell, who was, of course, under the Imperius curse. And um, Katie Bell ends up touching the necklace and becoming cursed herself. And when Minerva McGonagall found out what the object was that had cursed Katie Bell, she is like horrified. So this object must have quite the history in the wizarding world that people know the opal necklace, like just by seeing it or by hearing, oh, it was that opal necklace from Borgen and Burks and everybody knows just how bad it is. Mm-hmm. So that was pretty interesting to me that, yeah, if you want to talk about like a majorly cursed object, it was made of opal, which is this stone that is traditionally unlucky. But the thing that I think people don't realize about opal is that it has this history, probably because there are a bunch of men that wanted to off their wives and they're like, well, she got an opal necklace. And next thing you know, she turned up dead or went insane. (laughs) <laughs> like it was just a really convenient way to get rid of your wife back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> and it just, yeah, I got that reputation. And then it's like suddenly the opals fall instead of the crazy husbands doing evil things. But yeah. 
Yes. But Opal also has like really good traditional history mm-hmm. and like Aboriginal culture. It was thought to be like fossilized rainbow light. Like it has this really beautiful history in other ways. And in fact, because it contains all those colors of light is such a good chakra balancer. So I think that it kind of gets a bad reputation, but we see it come up two more times in the books. So one is like, I barely remember this and I had to go back and reread it because I was like, I don't remember that. So while Harry and Molly Weasley and all the rest of the kids are tidying up Grimald Place in the 1995 school year, they're tidying up cabinets next to the mantelpiece in that big main room. And Harry comes across this crystal bottle that's filled with blood and it has a large opal set in the stopper. So again, kind of ominous, like you find a big bottle filled with blood, like that doesn't sing happy thoughts to me. (laughs) And it has this opal um, set in the stopper. So again, it made me think of this like very negative connotations, kind of cursed object. Yeah, for sure. Wow. I bet there are more crystals in Grimald Place somewhere. Like if we could go in there, I bet there would be so much creepy stuff. That that house is just full of weird, scary objects. And I bet there are more in there. That would be so interesting to see. But that's, yeah, that's a creepy part for sure with that blood <laughs> in the bottle and the opal. Yeah. I wonder like just how many like Mangdungus Fletcher like ends up taking before we <laughs> hear about them. Yeah. I'm selling them. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Then there's just a very brief mention that says that Madame Maxime was also known to wear opals. And I thought this was really interesting because she is such this like powerful female character in the books. And I feel like for her, it's almost like her way of taking that history of women being driven mad by wearing opals and just like, I don't know, giving it over and just like, like letting it go and just saying, you know what? No, like I am in control of my own destiny. And if I want to wear opals, I'm going to wear opals. <laughs> yes. Oh, I love that. I feel like Madame Maxime is someone who would kind of reclaim that, um, that history of the opals driving women mad. And they're like, you know, she would just use that in a really beautiful way. And I, like you said earlier about opals um, being so good for chakra healing, I feel like opals, because they're so beautiful and shiny and magical. I feel like they can just open up every chakra. And so I think that, uh, Harry Potter characters with chakra issues, I feel like Madame Maxine would be someone who has just all of her chakras aligned at all times. So that would be a great stone for her to use and to wear. Yeah. I mean, just think about how confident she is and intelligent and creative and she is amazing. And she's always like, seen as this really powerful character, but still maintains this feminine quality to her that I just love. Like, even though she's this giant woman, she's still very feminine and very, like, I just love that she can totally have those two things in balance and that she doesn't feel threatened by like either of them. You know, they're just both part of her and that's great. But then it did get me thinking, she is half giant So it's interesting to me because there is still this like, not necessarily a cursed quality, but a quality that's frowned upon by the wizarding community, right? So there's still this part of her that's seen as, well, but you're not like totally human. So there's still this other little thing there that a lot of the wizarding community does see as negative. And so I thought, I wonder if like, that's that part of her that's drawn to the opal. Mm -hmm. That makes sense for sure. Very interesting. Yeah. So, okay. Then we have pearls and pearls, of course, not a traditional crystal, but one that we do use in crystal healing. 
So pearl dust is another ingredient used in potion making, and it's one of the ingredients that said to always be used in love potions. So while love potion recipes can really vary, like it talks about how some of them contain rose petals and others will contain honey, and they're very, very diverse. The one thing that all love potions have to have is pearl dust. And so I was thinking, why would this be? So I was thinking about how pearl is associated with Aphrodite, the goddess Aphrodite. Like, you know, Aphrodite was born of the clamshell and so was Venus born of the clamshell. And they're these goddesses of love and beauty. So for me, that's kind of maybe where the association came in. That makes sense for sure. I've never thought about that, but yeah, that that's definitely something that makes sense. I was thinking, otherwise, why would it be pearl? I don't know. But yeah. Yeah. But pearl also is the birthstone of June. And in June, um, what is that? I think Gemini is associated with the planet Venus. So that also would be kind of a correspondence. So Mm -hmm. interesting. And then, of course, there's Hermione Granger's necklace that she wears to the wedding of Bill Weasley and Flora de la Cour. So she wears this really beautiful necklace and it actually has pearl in it as well. So again, this other kind of association with love. She's going to a wedding. Um, and of course, in the books, I believe Victor Crumb, yeah, Victor Crumb is at the wedding in the books. I don't think we see him in the movies though. Yeah, I don't think, I can't recall if he was in the wedding scene, but he's definitely there in the books. Yeah, um, because he has the whole issue with the Deathly Hallows symbol. Right, right. which is a big, big part of it. Yeah. I, that was oh, totally yeah. missing from the movies. But anyhow, yeah. So I thought, okay, so maybe like this is like Hermione's way of just, yeah, kind of like tapping into that vibration of love and really enjoying the wedding. So then we have Ruby. Ruby, uh, of course, plays a huge role in the books because it is part of the sort of Gryffindor. And I think this is kind of like the most iconic way that we see crystals and gems um, in the movies and in the books. So of course, the sort of Gryffindor was made over a thousand years ago by goblins. It's a magical sword um, and enchanted, and it's made of pure silver, but its hilt is said to be set with egg-sized rubies. If you can even imagine an egg-sized ruby, it just tells you like how valuable this sword would be, even just from like a monetary standpoint. But think of how much power and energy it would come in like an egg-sized ruby. I also though can't imagine like trying to swing around a sword that has these like massive egg-sized stones all over it. Yeah, pure silver and egg-sized rubies. That would be kind of heavy. A little bit much, maybe. Yeah, a little much. <laughs> and then, of course, because rubies are associated with Gryffindor, they are the gemstone that fills the Gryffindor house points hourglass at Hogwarts. Um, so we see them there. Then, and kind of like little side mentions, um, in the summer of 1991, when Harry first visits Gringotts um, on his very, very first trip to Diagon Alley before he even gets to Hogwarts. He sees a goblin who's weighing a pile of rubies that's said to be as big as glowing coals. So again, we have these like massive, massive rubies in the wizarding world. And although we have really big gemstones like that, sometimes they're very rare. So to have a pile of rubies as big as glowing coals would be quite the feat. And I don't know, I think the wizards have like the hookup on where to find these good gemstones. Yeah. That's what I was about to ask you. Like, what do you think that means? Like, where are they getting these massive rubies and why is that so central to this story? 
I don't know. I was wondering if maybe there's like a little Engorgio charm action happening. <laughs> <laughs> that, or there could be like a secret Ruby mine, like hidden under one of the all wizard communities like Diagon Alley or Hogsmeade. Maybe they just have like these mines that muggles cannot access. So they're getting these huge rubies out and just using them to fill up like swords and the, the Gryffindor, um, the house points thing. They're just like using rubies everywhere. That, those are expensive though. That would be a very expensive thing to do. Yeah. So then it said at the, during the same visit, while Harry is still at Gringotts, it says that there is another goblin or maybe the same one, we don't know, who refuses to serve Harry because he was busy counting several thousand rubies. So again, not only are they like huge, but as big as glowing coals, but then they're also like several thousand. We don't know if those are all really big too, but there's <laughs> like a plethora of rubies happening everywhere. <laughs> so kind of interesting. So then, okay, one last like weird little side mention of rubies comes from the story of Babbity Rabbity and her cackling stump, <laughs> which of course we know Ron Weasley really loves. <laughs> a little embarrassed after he admits it. So there's like a charlatan character in Babbity Rabbity, and this character requests payment in the form of rubies, saying that they were going to turn them into curative charms. So rubies do have like a strong connection with healing energy, with being kind of a talisman for physical health. They're the color of blood, so they're thought to really bring a lot of vitality and energy into the body. So that kind of made a lot of sense for me. Whether or not this person was really actually going to turn them into curative charms, is like another story, but mm-hmm. it would make sense that that's what they would say. Yeah. And just that she made a point again to include it in that tiny way um, in the Babbity Rabbity story. It's yeah. interesting that she included it there. Yeah. So, okay. Now we're finally on our last gemstone. And I know this has been like a crazy long segment, but this is so interesting to me. So <laughs> that, that brings us to sapphires. So sapphires here, we only ever see blue sapphires, which is interesting because sapphires actually come in like pretty much every color. But sapphires are the blue stone that's used to fill the Ravenclaw house points hourglass, which I find really interesting because sapphires connect to the third eye and crown chakras. Um, So they're really about the intuition as well as the intellect. And I think although Ravenclaws really value intellect and wisdom, like there is a certain amount of intuition that really supports that. Um, They're also said to be stored in vaults one, two, and three of Gringotts Bank. Like they're just vaults one, two, and three are only full of sapphires. Hmm. And I'm like, why? Hmm." I wonder if there's like some numerology situation going on there, or if this is just showing you, like, if you think back to the history of Gringotts, like whoever got vaults one, two, and three, like Gringotts, the very first customer, the thing they cherish most was sapphires. So maybe this is just telling you that sapphires have been treasured for a really long time. Yeah. I mean, there have to be thousands of vaults in there. So just for, yeah, those first three to be filled up with sapphires. I need more backstories, JK Rowling. I, if you're listening, I know you're just going to listen to this because we're so important. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> give us some crystal backstories. <laughs> okay. Then the final appearance of sapphires is probably the most important. And this is um, the sapphire that is set in Rowena Ravenclaw's lost diadem. So the diadem is like a little tiara or crown. Um, Rowena Ravenclaw, of course, the founder of Ravenclaw House. And it said that her diadem had etched upon its surface Rowena Ravenclaw's famous quote, wit beyond measure is man's greatest treasure. And 
wearing this diadem was said to enhance the wisdom of the wearer. And the house's most treasured attribute, of course, is wisdom. And then it has this blue sapphire shaped like an oval. And I thought about where you'd wear this is maybe like over your third eye. And so if this is supposed to enhance the wisdom of the wearer, I think it is helping Ravenclaws kind of balance out with that more logical wit with the intuition and kind of pulling from or calling on their intuition to support what they know logically. I agree completely. And I'm going to talk about that more in a few minutes when I talk about the Ravenclaw crystals. But yeah, that is something I've been thinking about a lot is about the wisdom part of Ravenclaws because we do think about them as being so logical and intellectual, but I don't think you can separate that from intuition, but I won't spoil that part of the conversation yet. We'll get back to that. (laughs) Well, actually, this is a good time to transition. (laughs) Now we'll move on to segment two, which Lauren is going to take us through the four Hogwarts houses and their recommended crystals and why. Yeah, I have been thinking about this. Actually, when we got back from our trip, our recent trip to New Zealand, and I was in Chicago for a few days, jet lagged, like I could not sleep at all. I just stayed up all night making notes about which, you know, crystals would go for each Harry Potter house. So I've just been percolating this in my mind for a while. First, though, I want to talk a little bit about the houses. So Ashley, I know which house I would sort you into from like what I know of you, but I'm curious to know how you identify which house do you feel like you're in? I'm a griffin claw. (laughs) (laughs) That makes sense. Yeah, I I put you into Gryffindor in my mind. But yes, that is the perfect hybrid house for you. So like if I were self-sorting, I probably would have put myself into Gryffindor because I just feel like I have that personality more. Mm -hmm. But when I have taken my Pottermore house sorting quiz like over and over and over, always puts me into Ravenclaw. Interesting. Yeah. 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 Well, I think that (laughs) self-identification is the most important thing. You got to choose which house you're in. So Pottermore, you know, who knows how accurate those are, but I think, I, I think I would uh, think of you as a Gryffindor. And I've actually decided that um, out of the four main members of our team that have been around for a while, I think we actually represent each of the four Hogwarts houses. And that's why we work together so well. That's my new theory. So true. So I put you and Gryffindor, Lucy, our um, marketing manager into Hufflepuff, Charlotte, <laughs> who does all of our customer support and now project management, um, into Ravenclaw. And then I am actually a Slytherin, which we'll talk about more in a second, but I think that that balances out the love and light team really nicely. And we can create a lot of magic because we're all the houses. Okay. So let's start with talking about Hufflepuff because like you said, they are like the most underrated group. Um, and they just don't get credit where it's due, but, uh, diamonds, obviously if JK Rowling chose to give them diamonds as their house point system, uh, gemstone, that that's a big thing to say. So I think that Hufflepuffs, and I'm kind of translating these into archetypes that people in our world have. So these are kind of, you know, magical people who do crystal healing and all this kind of other fun stuff that we're into. These are kind of archetypes. They're not necessarily based exactly on just what's in the book. So I've expanded on that. Right. Okay. So Hufflepuffs are obviously so kind, loyal, dependable, super hardworking. They just pay attention to detail and they get stuff done. Um, They also, I think, are really good team players. And again, like I said, that's why I would put Lucy from our team into this house. She pays so much attention to detail. I think that Hufflepuffs get really creative solutions to to things. They pay attention to detail and they're just able to work through projects and things in a totally different way than the other houses. They're just very, very grounded Um, And I also think that Hufflepuffs, out of any of the other houses, Hufflepuffs 
are going to be the people in our world who are spending a ton of time on self-development and um, kind of self-care and reading all the books about like the little things you should do for your self-development. And that's just something that I keep associating with Hufflepuffs. Uh, that's that's who is who's going to fit into this archetype. If you're listening to this and you're not sure which house you're in, if that describes you, you are totally a Hufflepuff. That's okay. so true. They're like such self-nurturers. Like when I picture yeah. a Hufflepuff, I picture someone like cozied up with a big blanket on their sofa with their dog and their cat and a book and just like yes. in exactly. a hot cup of tea or cocoa and just like doing all the things that they need to do to like be really good to themselves. But yes. this is like totally not in a selfish way. You know, not at all. Not because at all. they like yeah. give and give and give so much that they like need that time. Yeah, they need that time and they need uh, those strategies for themselves, like what they're going to do, little rituals throughout their day to do self-development, to kind of work through their decisions at a really slow pace. So I think that's, those are all amazing qualities of Hufflepuff. Okay, so I have three crystals that I think are going to work best for Hufflepuffs. The first one is Bumblebee Jasper. And yeah, this is like, the, I love this stone. It's so beautiful. And I've never seen one that's bigger than like a few millimeters. Every time I ever see them, every time I ever work with them, they're like pretty tiny ones. And I I'm know you have a big one. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. Or maybe I'm sending one to Lucy. <laughs> yeah, Lucy needs one. Um, but they're, they pack a punch. Like you don't need a big one to really feel the energy. You can have a tiny Bumblebee Jasper and you just feel that energy so strongly. Um, and I think that would serve Hufflepuffs really well in that topic of self-development because it's just going to kind of invigorate them. And it's just a fun stone. It's very energetic. It's very uh, creative. And it kind of lets Hufflepuffs, I think, show their true colors because Hufflepuffs, like in the books, they're so underrated. And if we in real life meet a Hufflepuff, you might think they're kind of plain or kind of average at first. And then you get to know them and you're like, oh my God, you have the most amazing high energy ever. So I think Bumblebee Jasper is the crystal like that just represents all of those things. It's going to serve Hufflepuffs really well. That's so true because Hufflepuffs have this like, not cool reputation for being lazy and they are so right. not lazy not at all not at all yeah just because they don't do what like a Gryffindor or a Ravenclaw would do doesn't mean that they are lazy yeah just because they're sensible and don't do the stupid <laughs> thing that Harry Potter does does not make them lazy um yeah so the second crystal that I have for Hufflepuffs is Unakite and the reason I like this one is I think that Unakite um, is a very nourishing and nurturing stone. And there are a few crystals that I always tell people are like the home-cooked meals of the crystal world. And Unakite is one of those. And there is like this funny kind of poking at Hufflepuffs in the books about them liking food and the like their house um, is close to the kitchens. So there's that kind of energy in the book. So about Hufflepuffs really enjoying some good food. So I like Inukite for that. It just has that energy of like a nourishing meal, that kind of comfort food quality that you feel when you eat a really good meal. I think that Unakite kind of brings that to the table. So I think that's a great one for Hufflepuffs to work with as well. And then the last one that I would recommend for Hufflepuffs is natural citrine. And although I work with um, like the heat-treated amethyst, which most people would call citrine uh, all the time, I love it. I think it's beautiful. But for this specific usage, I think that natural citrine is non-negotiable. It is so dependable. It's like such a pillar um, of a stone. It just has this incredibly loyal and dependable energy. There's so many versatile ways to work with it. And I feel like that kind of represents Hufflepuffs. They're very versatile people and they can kind of adapt 
two different situations in a really beautiful natural way. So, um, yeah, so natural citrina is the last one. And then I also thought about which houses uh, of the four houses, which ones correspond to each of the chakras, because I think that's really important to work with. If you're identifying with this archetypal energy of your house, which chakras do you kind of need to work on the most because they're bringing the most power to your to your aura and your energy. So for Hufflepuff, I'm going to go with the solar plexus chakra and the root chakra. They're very grounded in that root chakra energy and also very enthusiastic um, in their solar plexus. They're able to bring in that joy and that beautiful, you know, swirling yellow uh, from that and then the red from the root chakra really easily. Yeah, so happy. I feel like uh, the happiness of a Hufflepuff is contagious. Although, like, they don't feel the pressure to be, like, happy all the time and, like, really put it out there. Like, when they are happy, they glow. And it's like, you can't help but be happy if you're around them. Yeah, exactly. And that's exactly how Lucy on our team is. Like, you can't be around her without just, like, being in a good mood because she's so, she just has this infectious Hufflepuffian, if that's the word you would use, Hufflepuffian energy. So <laughs> they always have great smiles. Like I feel yeah. like a Hufflepuff smile is is like that, like that Unakite energy we're talking about, like yep. a good like, comfort food meal. Like yeah. that's what a Hufflepuff smile is like. Completely. Oh, I agree completely. So yeah, I hope those are really helpful. If you're a Hufflepuff, I hope you like those suggestions and you can let us know if you work with those. Um, but yeah, so let's move on to Ravenclaw now. And, um, out of our team, I have sorted Charlotte into Ravenclaw house. I think that she is the most intuitive person I know. Like she's creepy intuitive. You can't get anything past her. And I think that's just how Ravenclaws are in general. They're very intuitive. Um, and you just can't get any BS past their radar. They, they just know what's going on at all times. Um, and of course in the books, something that is mentioned continually for Ravenclaws is that part about intellectual the intellectual um, aspects of that and being really clever. But uh, I don't think they put enough emphasis on how intuition plays into that. And something that I keep thinking about is, you know, that scene when Luna is going with Harry, I believe, into the Ravenclaw common room. And she has to answer a riddle. So that's their thing. Instead of a password, they have to answer a riddle every time they want to go into their common room. So the question that she gets is like something like what kind, what came first, the chicken or the egg? And she thinks about it for a minute. And then she says something like neither one because a circle has no beginning or something like that. Do you remember that part? Yeah. That is not really what I would classify as intellectual or clever. I would classify that as much more of a wisdom intuition answer to that question like it's that's just a an inseparable part I think for Ravenclaws is that intuitive part of it yeah um, that's like a life's deeper questions yeah like, completely it's not like they asked her to solve like a calculus equation like that was a pretty intuitive thing that you really have to think about riddles are intuitive by nature so I just love that part. I love Luna Lovegood, obviously. She's such an amazing character. But um, yeah, so I have three crystals that I would recommend for Ravenclaws to kind of get in touch with that intuition and balance out that intellectual part and the intuitive part. Yeah, um, I love that we were on the same page about this with the Ravenclaws because so we each like prepared our little segments like separately. Separately. I think that's really cool that we're both like Ravenclaws. You don't get enough props for your intuition. <laughs> exactly. I love that. We're, we're so like psychically linked. Ashley is scary, but yeah, <laughs> Ravenclaws need to really um, appreciate how intuitive they are and kind of allow that to come through. So the crystals that I am recommending are a big 
part of that just to help enhance that intuition. The first one is tanzanite, which I think of as like the king of intuitive stones. And that's another one that you just need a tiny one. You don't need like a big tanzanite. You can have a tiny one and feel so much energy from it. And if you kind of just place that on your third eye, um, even for a few seconds, I feel like your third eye just uh, like opens up and activates so easily from that stone. It's such a powerful one um, to open that up. And I just think it's like the ultimate stone of intuition. So I would definitely go with that one for Ravenclaws to help them kind of trust their intuition and remember that everything is not about what you can learn in a book. It's more about that life experience and the wisdom that comes with it. I love that you picked this one too, because like, although like a tanzanite isn't an inexpensive stone to acquire, it's not nearly going to be the same price as a blue sapphire, which is like the house stone in the books. So I feel like a tanzanite is a lot more practical from like the monetary standpoint, but also because it is so much more aligned like energetically with what a Ravenclaw is really about. Yeah. And it it does have a similar energy, I would say, um, personally to the blue sapphire in terms of working with intuition, but definitely a more cost-effective option. Um, if you want to work with that intuition part of it. So the second one that I have for Ravenclaw is selenite. And I think that selenite kind of allows you to connect your third eye to your crown chakra and to kind of receive these divine messages in a really easy way. Um, So while Ravenclaws are working with their intuition, they're getting all these like ego-based messages about the kind of intellectual part of that, but they can also use selenite to get these divine messages as well. And one of my all-time favorite things about selenite that I think of every time I work with it is something you said a few years ago, I think for like one of our office hour calls for our students, is about using selenite um, as like a runway when you're doing um, astral travel or anything like that. I love, that is the most genius thing. Like I I think about that all the time. I've told so many people to work with Stellar in that way Um, because it is, it's just like a runway. It just kind of connects the dimensions and the worlds of all this knowledge that's available to us and makes it really accessible. So I think that Ravenclaws could really use Selenite to kind of bridge that gap in, in a really easy way. And this is so Charlotte. Can I just say? So like, Charlotte. Yes. Yeah, you definitely <laughs> identified. Yeah. Charlotte as a Ravenclaw, like very spot on because she is very logical and analytical, but like so highly intuitive. Yes. She just needs like that selenite guidance, that yeah. guidance to like yes. bring it on home. Completely. Yeah. This is so Charlotte. She's such a genius, but she's so intuitive. And yeah, just using stones like that to kind of bring those two things together, I think is just going to be really helpful. Um, for anyone that would identify as a Ravenclaw. Um, The last final one for Ravenclaws is Charoite, which I think is another amazing powerhouse stone for intuition, but it also helps you focus and kind of interpret messages that you receive from the universe. I think that if you're working with the Tanzanite to open up the third eye, the Selenite to kind of connect that to the crown chakra and kind of get those messages in, And then Charoite kind of allows you to interpret those and focus in on what's important and kind of what you're going to, how you're going to use those messages to really apply to your life in like a way that makes sense for what you need at that time. So uh, Charoite is a great one for that. And Charoite also, I feel like is a stone that's really associated with wisdom. And you were talking in your segment about wisdom in Ravenclaw and how the diadem was meant to enhance wisdom. So let's talk about for a minute, like, in goddess history, because you know how I am, I have to talk about this. Like wisdom is such a key attribute of the goddess in 
like every culture. It's just something that's inextricable when you're talking about um, goddess history from the idea of the goddess in lots of cultures. So I think that uh, Charoite will really bring that wisdom in. But I think it's also interesting that wisdom is so talked about in the books um, in relation to Ravenclaw because you just have this very masculine sort of intellectual part highlighted, but then you're also really highlighting that wisdom piece of it. So I just think that's really beautiful. What do you think? Yeah. And I love that. Like, if you look at the original, like house founders, Rowena Ravenclaw is a woman. Mm -hmm. And not only that, but like bringing it back to the idea of like this goddess wisdom, she's a mother and we don't see a lot of actual mother figures. Obviously we have like Harry's mother who has died, Tom Riddle's mother who has died, Neville's mother who isn't around. We Mm -hmm. have Draco's mother who in her own way is nurturing yes it's in kind of a convoluted weird way right Mm -hmm. (laughs) very conflicted still like as a mother she like has her own personal agenda but then is trying to do right by her son um but then we have like Rowena Ravenclaw whose daughter ends up like being the gray lady who Mm -hmm. like call her to her face because she didn't like that but (laughs) (laughs) I just love that, yeah, as like a house founder, she is a woman. She, and not only that, but like we don't often get to see smart women. We often get to see beautiful women or artistic women, but not often smart women. And I love that she is this brilliant, brilliant person that everyone in Ravenclaw House gets to look up to because they all look up to their house founders and like use them as an example for like how to live your life and how to. Um, kind of form your time at Hogwarts as a student. But not only is she smart, but like it kind of ties into this idea of goddess wisdom and of women's intuition. Yes, completely. Yep. So I think I that's pretty cool. And I love, I love Charoite for that. That just seems to fit. Yeah, completely. Yeah, I love Charoite for that. Um, it's such a good one. And then working with those three, I think those three really together just will be incredibly beneficial, the Tanzanite and the Selenite and the Chardoite, kind of using them for different purposes, but in a really cohesive way. I think those are going to help uh, Ravenclaws a lot. And then the chakras that I would associate Ravenclaw with, although obviously the third eye is about intuition, I actually thought more about the crown and the throat chakras um, because they're getting just all this knowledge, like it's happening in their brain and the crown chakra is kind of related to that Um, so they are intuitive, but they're also kind of drawing that intuition back into their brains to kind of mix that with their intellectual side. So I think the crown chakra is really important for the Ravenclaws to keep in balance. And then the throat chakra, because I feel like Ravenclaws would have underbalanced throat chakras because they're having so much happening in their head, that they're having a hard time really communicating that because there's just too much. So I think Ravenclaws would really benefit from, um, strengthening and balancing their throat chakras. Yeah, I can see them speaking when it comes to like a philosophical debate, right? right? But not necessarily like communicating about their emotions or their inner landscapes or what. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yes. Okay, so let's move on to Gryffindor, which like I said, I would put you in. Um, I think that Gryffindors like as an archetype are obviously so brave and courageous, but I think that anyone kind of in our world who is drawn to being an entrepreneur would really associate with Gryffindor. And that's just you. You like have built this amazing business from the ground up. And that's such a Gryffindor trait. Like you have worked so hard for everything you've done and everything you've gotten. But I think anyone else in any of the other houses would have a bit of a hard time being an entrepreneur because they just don't have that like drive and that 
like incredible creativity to just be brave and courageous all the time. And what sell, what sets Gryffindors apart as well is the ability to not only be creative, but to really follow through on the projects that they start. I think that Slytherins, Ravenclaws, and Hufflepuffs could all be equally as creative, but get distracted along the way with other things. So <laughs> that's so funny. I think that's probably like somewhat true, but I also like see that in myself, like as a Gryffindor, because we are, are like often in these like leadership roles and mm-hmm. where we do have that like courageous, like not afraid to kind of like speak up and take charge and like do things this way. Sometimes we end up going like 8 million different directions. Oh yeah. <laughs> so yeah. we need like the Slytherins and the Ravenclaws and the Hufflepuffs to like keep us in check. <laughs> that is true. And that's actually another thing that I'll talk about in a second with one of the crystals. I think that one of the crystals that I decided on was kind of to help those 8 million projects kind of stay <laughs> with some balance of like what's the most important to do at that time. Lauren, are you speaking from personal experience? No, you don't, you don't need that at all. I've never seen you go in like opposite directions ever. I'm not talking to you at all. <laughs> I don't know about that, but okay. <laughs> so the first one that I would recommend for Gryffindors, apart from Ruby, obviously, which is a huge part of the stories. But besides that, um, Red Jasper is so grounding, but it also has like a really amazing um, ability to nurture the inner strength that some other grounding stones might not have. So it kind of combines the grounding aspect uh, with the strength aspect. And I think that's something that a lot of Gryffindors could really use to kind of stand in their power and just remember how much potential they have to create sacred businesses that are really helping people in the world. So Red Jasper absolutely is something that I would go with. Um, The next one that I would go with though is Rutilated Quartz. And I have personally been working so intensely with related courts. I know we've talked about this a little bit um, for the past year or so. And it kind of reminds me of like a strike of lightning. And obviously that's a big thing in the Harry Potter books because of his scar. But um, I feel like related courts can just give you a clarity to look at all the, you know, things that you could focus on right now and decide which ones are the most important and which ones you need to focus on on that time and to help you just prioritize all the billions of things you have to do. So I think related courts would be fantastic. Do you work with related courts often? What's your experience with that? I do. And I love that you brought this one up. And I think it's really cool that you associate it with like the lightning strike kind of energy. Because for me, as soon as you said that, like what popped in my head immediately was the image of the lion of the Gryffindor lion and the lion's mane and seeing like those golden hairs of the lion's mane. So it has like this, yeah, definitely that, but it has that very electrical, like exciting lightning strike kind of energy to it. That really highly motivational energy. But then it also has like that courage, bravery, follow through, inner drive kind of quality. And when those two come together, because when you can be excited and motivated and passionate and then still have that like driving force behind it, I think that is a very Gryffindor. I love that you picked this one. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's such a natural thing for a Gryffindor to do, but because we live in a world where so much is going on, I think that Gryffindors could get distracted a little bit. Um, so related courts would just help them stay on track. And then the next one is, is kind of similar in a lot of ways, which is pyrite. And while I think the related courts will help you focus in and prioritize, I think pyrite will help Gryffindors keep their energy up so that they can really devote all that passion and love to the projects that they care about. So yeah, Red Jasper, related courts, and pyrite. And then also pyrite helps kind of attract abundance. If Gryffindors are putting in all this hard work 
to, you know, create their businesses or whatever they're doing with their projects. Um, it keeps your energy up. Then it also really draws that abundance to you to kind of pay you off for all that hard work that you're putting out into the universe. It's like kind of like this karmic balance um, financially that pyrite can bring to you. So I think that's a really important one. Yeah. Creating that like energy exchange. Exactly. An energy exchange. Yeah. That's so cool. Oh my gosh. I love this. I want to make little like crystal pouches of the Hogwarts houses and just give them to everybody I know. (laughs) We should so do that. I'm I'm making this happen. Okay. (laughs) That's amazing. Um, So yeah, the chakras um, that I would associate with Gryffindors, obviously there are seven chakras, so this is a minor one, but um, the heart chakra, of course, I think is so linked to Gryffindors because it's that incredible passion that Gryffindors have for the things that they care about. But the other thing that I thought about for Gryffindors, um, instead of one of the main chakras, was actually the micro chakras of the hands. And there are so many micro chakras there. And uh, Gryffindors can just use that so powerfully. I think that Gryffindors can just use that power, um, that healing power of their hands. And they don't need a lot of external tools. They don't need all this, you know, other tools to use all these magical tools. They just have this beautiful energy that they can work with through those micro micro chakras, sorry, other hands. So I think that Gryffindors, in addition to making great entrepreneurs, would make great healers because they can really move and channel that energy with their hands. Awesome. Like you, like you, obviously. (laughs) And now I'm dying to hear about your take on Slytherin because obviously Slytherins get a bad rep, but they should not because there are amazing Slytherins as we know. Like yes. look at Snape. Although you could argue that he like did some shady stuff early oh, on. He totally did some shady okay, stuff. But also, like, we've yeah. all made young, dumb mistakes and, and whatever. He he listened to his heart in the end and he like came back because of love. And that's pretty admirable. So like, Absolutely. yeah, tell me what what I'm dying to know. What okay, are the qualities so, of the Slytherin and the crystals? Yeah. What I like to think about for Slytherin is someone you mentioned earlier, which is Narcissa Malfoy. They're obviously as a plot point, there have to be bad guys in the Harry Potter series. So Slytherin kind of gets that reputation. And there are obviously problematic things that Slytherins have done. <laughs> obviously. Voldemort was a horrible person. But um, I like to think about Narcissa Malfoy as a, a kind, of, kind of an example of a Slytherin who doesn't have that inherent link to just this horrible part. It's just kind of drawing on this dark energy. That's not a bad thing. We have to have that dark to balance of the light. And I think a lot of people in the spiritual world put so much emphasis on the light magic, the light energy, the light working, that they're really not paying attention to their shadow sides. And they're not able to work through a lot of dark issues um, that you have to have, yeah, you have to have that balance in the world. So I think that's really important. So personally, I identify as a Slytherin, which is crazy because when I first took a sorting quiz, probably like 12 years ago. I don't know how long ago. It was like when I was a teenager. Um, I got sorted into Slytherin house and I was like, it was an identity crisis. Honestly, I was like, I am not a Slytherin. I am not a bad person. I'm not an evil person. Um, And that's kind of been like, as weird as it sounds though, that's kind of been a part of my journey um, developing into who I am now though, is coming to terms with that like darkness that is, I think a part of my soul. Uh, But knowing that that's not a bad thing. That's just like that balance is so needed in the world. And um, I think that I've always been very drawn to dark magic and the darker aspects of spirituality, dark goddesses, dark energies. Uh, and that's, yeah, it's so now I proudly identify as a Slytherin and think that's something that's really important for people to kind of get on board with is that um, 
just that being in touch with those intuitive parts, those sensual parts, those dark parts of our personalities and working on that shadow work. Um, I love that you brought this up because it really is about like tapping into that and drawing strength from it. Like knowing that it doesn't always have to be like light and bright with sunshine falling out of your butt. Like it doesn't, (laughs) (laughs) you know, like it's okay to like embrace that other aspect of yourself because I feel like when you ignore it, that's when you end up with problems. Like people who just totally ignore that part and pretend it doesn't exist and shut it up and close it up in a little box. Like that's when it's out of control. And that's when you're like letting it rule your life. But when you're really embracing it and like kind of like dissecting it and trying to understand it better and like taking it on as part of what makes you up as a person and like utilizing those things to help you grow or help you tap into a part of yourself more deeply. Like that's when it becomes really beautiful and I'm so glad that you brought up Narcissa as an example of actually a really good role model for Slytherin. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of people might, might not think this because she made some mistakes, but like, she's a human. <laughs> like we all yeah. make mistakes. Harry made some mistakes too, you know, yeah. like we're not perfect, but Narcissa, I mean, think about her situation. So she's married to Lucius who is, has, has this like major Slytherin quality of being like really power driven but like, I think he has that to an extreme. Not all Slytherins have that, you know, but mm-hmm. this is like a character flaw within Lucius. So she's married to this person who's taking her family on this crazy wild ride. And in a way she doesn't feel like she has much control over that. And not only that, but her cousin, right. Is Bellatrix. Or her right. Sister? He, her sister. Yeah. It's her sister. Sister yeah. is Bellatrix Lestrange. Who's like Voldemort's number two basically. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> and there are more things that happen in obviously cursed child <laughs> with Bellatrix, yeah. but yeah, right. <laughs> so we won't get into that. Another, <laughs> right. another podcast. <laughs> another podcast. <laughs> sure. So we have like Bellatrix then who is pretty much pure evil. I mean, like she is as bad as a baddie can get. Like she, oh, is, she is pretty awful. Yeah. And so like you have Narcissa and these are the people that are surrounded that she is surrounded by. And if you've ever heard that little saying that like, you are like the conglomeration of the 10 people that you surround yourself with, like poor freaking Narcissa, because she Mm. is stuck in this like pit of just not great people. But in the end, the thing that I love so much is in the end, like she doesn't let that like stop her and like her values and what's important to her because her family is more important to her than anything else. And that's apparent throughout the whole thing. I mean, just look at like that conversation. She goes with Bellatrix to Snape's house and like Mm -hmm. has a conversation about making sure that he protects Draco and like at all costs, like she's a mother before everything else. And like that is in her heart and she never loses sight of that like love. And I think she really draws on that as a strength, as a Slytherin. And ultimately we see like at the end of the last film, her and Draco and Lucius like walking away from yeah. the battle of Hogwarts because yeah. she's dead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. She put exactly. her foot down. And I love that. I love that too. She is such, she's like my favorite mother figure in this series. And as much as we all obviously love Lily Potter, like I think that Narcissa loves Draco equally as much as Lily loved Harry and we just don't give her credit for that but yeah that the whole thing like where, where she has Snape protecting um Draco and then later on she actually saves Harry's life 
Like if it wasn't for her in the seventh book, Harry would have like Voldemort would have killed him at that point. And she does like whatever it takes to help her son. And that does happen in the movies. But I think there's also a part in the books. I can't recall. I haven't read the seventh book in a little while, but, um, there's a part where like the Malfoy family is there after the battle in the great hall when everyone's kind of, yes, the wounds and they're like, the Malfoys weren't sure if they should be there or if they were like allowed to be there, but they were there anyway. And then, yeah, it's just, it's beautiful. I love her character. She's so representative of a strong woman and a strong mother. She's amazing. So that's what I think we need to think about when we think about the Slytherin archetype. <laughs> More than like the risk to her, you know, yes. to lie okay. to Voldemort. Like that yes. was courageous. That was scary, courageous. And I think you're right. Like that right there proves that she did love Draco as much as Lily Potter loved Harry because if she would have been found out she would have been killed so in essence like she was ready to give her life for her son yeah and she would I think she would in an absolute heartbeat she would give her life for Draco um so she's amazing but um, sorry sidetrack but that was very (laughs) that was important we had to give a moment a dedicated moment to Narcissa Malfoy um yeah so other kind of things about the Slytherin archetype how I was saying earlier about the Hufflepuffs spending like all their time on self-development and all this like these deep conversations and these deep thoughts about working everything out, weighing the pros and cons, making lists, you know, reading books, doing all this stuff. Slytherins are the opposite of that. They do not care at all about self-development books. I think they just like make a decision and go for it. And then they might realize like halfway through what a horrible decision that was, but they're like, you better believe I'm going to see this through because I started it and no one is going to come in my way (laughs) anymore. So they rely almost too much um, on their intuition, I think to a fault at sometimes. Um, Do you think that's like a Slytherin pride thing though? They're like, this is what I've chosen. So it must be right. It is completely. And that is something I have done since I was a small child. I remember like making decisions, telling my family what I was going to do. And then halfway through, I'd be like, oh man, why did I get myself into this? Why did I start this? When I was like six or seven years old. But no, I was not going to go back on my word. I was going to completely follow it through. Even if it was a horrible decision, even if I felt bad about it, my pride was like way too much. So oh, man, I, I need so to work funny. on that. But I was a total opposite. I remember being like six years old and deciding I was going to run away and like driving my big wheel, like half <laughs> down the block and being like, Oh, never mind, I give up. This is weird. <laughs> oh, no, I would have like gone to the state line before they found me. <laughs> Luckily, I never got that idea in my head. But yeah, that would not have been good. Um, The other thing about Slytherins, I think they're very fluid in their identities when new information and new knowledge comes to light. They are able to adapt to that really easily in in terms of spirituality um, for this archetype. If we, I don't think the pride comes into that. I think that we're able to absorb information that makes sense. Like as long as it makes sense, we're able to kind of incorporate in that into our beliefs and our pride system. Shed your skins, perhaps? Oh, oh, oh. (laughs) <laughs> that was deep and quick. Uh, yeah. It, speaking of that, um, the other, I think, like non-negotiable part of Slytherins is that they are very in touch with their sensuality, sexuality. Uh, and that's just, yeah, that's a big part of that. And I'll talk about that again in a second with one of the crystals. But I think that that's very much a part of Slytherin house and the Slytherin archetype is that just being very in touch with that creative um, sacral chakra aspect Oh, your personality. So yeah. So the three crystals that I have for Slytherins are clear apophyllite, black obsidian, and serpentine. Yes. So yes. (laughs) Yeah. Clear apophyllite. Um, I think it helps Slytherins kind of get really crystal clear 
in their issues, which I think like we were talking about with the pride, we do need that kind of assistance uh, in getting clear about what's actually important and what's important in our self-love and self-confidence journeys so that we can really just like move any obstacles that are getting in our way of our ambitious goals, whether that's an actual obstacle like externally or our own minds and that pride part of it. I think that clear puff light just helps clear out um, that part of it so easily. So I think that's a really important stone for Slytherins to work with. I know that I need <laughs> clear apophyllite in my life. If I'm making a big decision, I need to base it on, you know, a lot of factors rather than just my pride or my ego. So yeah, I think that's a really good one. Um, kind of on the flip side of that though, is black obsidian, which I think is Oh, I love black obsidian. It is such a good, such a good stone. And obviously it doesn't have a crystalline structure. And I kind of like that about it. It kind of has this very more loose and free flowing energy that I think for Slytherins is going to help you kind of cut away any stagnant or unnecessary energy that's not like serving your highest good. So then you can really kind of focus more on the things that are important in your life instead of just getting held back by you know, other people's energies, um, your pride, of course, again. So it just kind of helps you cut those ties in a way that's really effective. This is also a stone that was used by a lot of like Central American shaman for shadow work. So yes. it totally makes sense. Oh yeah. There's that whole part of it, of course, with the, it is a very, it's a stone that's very much associated with dark magic and especially with divination and scrying into a black obsidian, the black obsidian mirrors. Um, so yeah, it, and it kind of also is used by a lot of people in a lot of different cultures for kind of, um, as a mirror to kind of bridge this dimension to darker energies to come through. So, uh, spirits could move through a black obsidian or from any kind of mirror, but specifically through a black obsidian mirror. Uh, so that's something that I think is really interesting, um, for Slytherins, if you're not really in touch with your shadow side yet, if you haven't done a lot of shadow work or work with that darker magic, um, I think that black obsidian is a really fun way to kind of work with that and get in touch with that. And there's that like very uh, ancestral connection with black obsidian, connecting mm -hmm. with ancestors. And if you look at like in Slytherin house, the pride of like your ancestors is so important. So yes. like we can really take that from the books and put like a little bit more of a positive spin on it and, and just look at like, yeah, the pride of like connection with our own ancestors in our lives and letting them kind of be influences and guides and um, share like their knowledge. And I love that you have this kind of dichotomy of the light and dark represented with the clear apophyllite and the black obsidian. That was super yeah. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I think, and especially with working with those two together, like if you were working with those at the same time, they would just have this incredibly magical sort of activating energy that could just really help out um, someone with that kind of Slytherin archetype. Um, and then the last one, of course, I don't think we can talk about Slytherin without talking about serpentine. And serpentine really helps Slytherins kind of get more in touch with that sexual energy and that sensuality. Um, but it's also grounding. So I think that serpentine, as much as it will help you with that kind of movement part of the sensuality, it's also kind of grounding in that way. And it helps, I think, the kundalini energy flow and it helps that kind of raw, primal, sensual part of you kind of show in a way that's not toxic to you or to anyone else. It just kind of helps you embrace that part of yourself rather than hiding it away and thinking that it's wrong or that it's too dark or that it's not, you know, a good part of you. I think that it really helps that part shine through for Slytherins and really get that kundalini energy moving and all that good stuff going so yeah and I was gonna say like sex is grounding right like there's of like course. 
Yeah. Nothing much that I can think that's like a physical activity. Like, yes, walking on the earth with your bare feet is beautiful. And yes, going for a swim in the ocean is beautiful. But like sex is ultra grounding. So absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that just makes a lot of sense for that to be like an important energy for Slytherin. Yeah, absolutely. So Slytherins who are listening, go have some sex, but keep some serpentine in the room and you're going to have a real magical experience. You can think of me. <laughs> You can email me and let me know how that goes. Um, <laughs> so for Slytherins, the chakras that I think are really important are obviously the sacral chakra, like we've been talking about, um, which is, you know, so much about sexuality, sensuality, creativity, movement, and just this deep feeling, like the ability to really feel, um, you know, energies that are coming through and emotions. And I think that's such a beautiful thing for Slytherins to work with. And then, of course, um, I also think that Slytherins, should focus more on their third eye chakras. I think that that is a really important part for Slytherins to keep in balance, to kind of really rely on their intuitions a little bit more, not get too weighed down by that sacral chakra stuff, because that can easily tip in either direction. It can be their be that their sacral chakras are underbalanced and they're feeling a lot of shame about their sexuality or opposite of that, they could just get an addiction to, you know, that feeling too easily. So I think that they need to really balance that workout with the third eye letting that intuition come in and really trusting their intuition, but also separating it from their ego and from messages that are not for their highest good. So yeah, those are my ones for Slytherin. I love it. Yay. Let us know, like comment on the blog. What is your Hogwarts house and which of those three crystals, if you had to pick just one, are you going to start working with this week and tell us all about it? Like, I can't. Yes. <laughs> I got to hear that. Yes, me too. Well, Lauren, thank you. That was amazing. I have like a newfound respect for crystals related to the Hogwarts. <laughs> Something I had Who never thought about. Yep. <laughs> give me an archetype and I will give you a crystal for it. Literally. <laughs> I love thinking about that. I think it's just so fun. So this was a really fun project for me. It is. It's really fun to kind of match the energies that way. And yes. it's really neat. Um, All right. Well, that brings us to our final segment. For those of you who've hung out through this whole podcast, you are total (laughs) rock stars because I know that Lauren and I could just like keep nerding out about this stuff for several more hours. But (laughs) we have five other crystals that we're just going to touch on really quickly that we think would be excellent crystals for kind of connecting you with the wizarding world. So the very first one is muggle stone, muggle stone. So Lauren, I know you just got your very first piece of this, I think at the Tucson gem show this year. Yeah. When we were in Tucson this year, I had never, I don't think I had even heard of it. I might've heard of it before, but then when I saw it and it's that beautiful yellow and red, like the, you know, typical Gryffindor scarves that everyone's obsessed with. Yeah. It is a beautiful stone and it's so magical. I don't even know what it is. I don't know where it comes from. I don't know anything about it except that it's incredibly magical and it just has that really beautiful energy. So it comes from Africa okay, and it's a combination. Like I think I don't hundred percent know cause I haven't found any information about exactly what's in it. But to me, when I look at it, it looks very similar to tiger iron. Like, mm-hmm. um, but instead of having golden tiger's eye, red Jasper and hematite, I honestly think it's yellow Jasper, red Jasper and hematite kind of mixed together. So I don't think that it has that tiger's eye quality, but I think for me, like think about how grounding all of those crystals are. And like, I think like if I had to, you know, I don't know, guess as to why this is called Mugglestone. If I were picking a crystal that represented the idea of like muggles and the muggle world, it would be something that would be 
so grounded and so just in the physical that there was nothing spiritual, nothing magical in their lives. And I feel like this is such a like heavy, dense, like root chakra and earth star chakra crystal and not in a bad way. Like, I think I love the energy of this crystal, but I feel like if I were thinking of a crystal that kind of represented what the idea of like the muggle world versus the magical world is like, like maybe that would be it is that they aren't seeing like all the other layers that are there in our world. And this is kind of its own little universe, like this very grounded Oh, completely. That makes so much sense. And it reminded me of that part in the books because I just reread it where they're on the night bus in book three. And there's that line that's something like that the muggles just don't notice anything because they're not paying attention. And that's something that our world needs. Like we have lost this magic so much and because we're not paying attention. So all this, you know, literally Harry Potter could be real. Who knows any of this stuff, but you know, all these magical things that we practice, like the majority of humans just don't believe in those things and they don't allow any magic to take place in their life. So yeah, that's a really interesting kind of uh, combination. I'd like to think if Harry Potter world were real, we would have been invited. I mean, I think so. You're right. We would have gotten our letters to Hogwarts by now. Yeah, yeah. For sure. But I love what you said about this looking kind of like a Gryffindor scarf because it totally does. It has like these bands and stripes of red and yellow. And there's like a little bit of kind of a darker silver gray mixed in sometimes, not in every piece, but sometimes. So that'd be a cool crystal to work with just as a reminder to see more than what's there. Yes, absolutely. All right, next up we have Dragonstone. And this is a crystal that's been around for a couple of years now, probably like five or six years. It is also called African Bloodstone, but not the same as the gray and red African Bloodstone that's Seftonite. It's actually a green and red stone. Um, so it's mostly green, which looks kind of like a green epidote, similar to Unukite, but then instead of having that peachy balance with it, it has red jasper. So it is a variety of jasper, and it's sometimes called dragon jasper as well. Um, but I love this because dragons play a pretty big part in the wizarding world. And again, it's like one of those things that are thought not to exist by muggles. Like, obviously, we still have our own myths and legend and lore about dragons, but even Harry can hardly believe that dragons really exist. And it's only when Ron tells him, actually, you know, my brother Charlie works with dragons in Romania. Yeah, they definitely exist. And we have them in Britain. Like, that mm-hmm. is a mind blower for Harry. Yes. It's just not something he would ever think of. And I feel like dragons have this, talking about archetypal energies, like they are kind of their own totem animal and they have this archetypal fiery energy. They're strong, they're fierce. And I feel like if you needed to kind of have thicker skin, like dragon scales and be a little bit more um, kind of fierce and courageous, like dragonstone might be a really good crystal to support you. Yeah. Oh, I completely agree. Dragonstone is so amazing. And it, yeah, it brings all those qualities of that dragon archetypal energy kind of together in a stone that you can really work with in your day-to-day life to kind of help thicken that skin and bring in that magical quality of, yeah, just noticing all the beautiful things in your life. So the next two I'm going to do kind of together. So there's Merlinite and Mystic Merlinite. And a lot of people actually think that these are the same stone, 
but merlinite is more of like a dendritic type quartz or agate and mystic merlinite is actually indigo gabbro. So they are two different crystals. They're both trademarked names, unfortunately. Um, but merlinite, obviously Merlin is supposed to be one of the greatest wizards that has ever lived. And Lauren and I will actually be taking a trip to the realm of Avalon in like just two months. Like, so yeah, it's so soon. We're going to have to do another episode at some point about like crystals of Avalon, but we'll get into that later. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, maybe like after or right before or something close to the time yeah. of our trip, we'll definitely do a crystals of Avalon. But Merlin, obviously the great wizard that worked with King Arthur, probably the best known wizard in the world, whether you think of him as an actual real historical character or just kind of a made up fictional character, it's debatable. There's evidence to say that he was like really a guy. How magical he was, I'm not sure, but I think that depends on your imagination and how much <laughs> you want to believe. But either way, we can agree, total badass. Yeah, <laughs> well, for sure. For and sure. so Merlinite and Mystic Merlinite both kind of embody this concept of like becoming a wizard and like allowing yourself to feel into your own magic. And yeah, Lauren, what else would you use these crystals for? Yeah, all of that, yeah, just like drawing in your own magic. But something that I just thought about is when I was reading the Harry Potter books for the first time, J.K. Rowling kind of incorporates all these like historical figures who she's decided are magical. And then you like learn about them kind of in a new light. And obviously we know Merlin as being a magical wizard already. But when she, I think he's on a chocolate frog card or he's mentioned at some point, I know in the series. Um, and it's just like, oh, yeah, of course he was like part of the Harry Potter universe. So it's kind of incorporating all of these people that are actual historical figures um, into the Harry Potter universe. It's so fun. But uh, I love, yeah, Merlinite and Mystical Merlinite. I like working with both of them just because I do like those really magical, mystical crystals. And I think that those are an important part of your toolkit for working with any of those magical energies. Yeah, it's kind of hard not to be drawn to them, right? I mean, like it is. Into this kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I read somewhere, I don't remember which crystal book this was in. I think it was in Debbie Brown's book actually, but she recommended mystical Merlinite and Rose Quartz, I think, if I'm not mistaken, don't quote me on this, but to, to put in the bedroom. And I remember doing that and having like the best sleep of my life, which was something I never would have put together, but I'm pretty sure that was the combination she used. And that was an an interesting way to use it. Yeah. Try it out tonight. Let me know. (laughs) I want to try it. I will report back. Okay. (laughs) Um, And then the final crystal, and this is weird. I just wanted to round it out with like a nice five. I probably could have gone with seven and been like super JK magical number. (laughs) Oh, we should have. (laughs) But uh, like five is a very magical number too. So our fifth crystal are selenite unicorn horns because unicorns obviously a big part of the wizarding world and although we don't have unicorns there are the selenite unicorn horns so these are kind of like long tall pieces of selenite that are carved into these cool spiral shapes and I love that you commonly see this shape carved out of selenite because in the Harry Potter books the unicorns are supposed to be these creatures that are so pure and so beautiful and shine with this brilliant white light. Like once they're adults, we learn that they're actually like gold and silver when they're babies, which is really cool, but that they shine with this brilliant white light when they're adults. And I can think of nothing better that seems unicornish than selenite. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. So pure. It's just like a white light. It's, it's so beautiful. Yeah. So if you want to kind of bring that 
like idea of these, this like very pure magical energy into your space. Like I feel like, especially this is one that's really good to just put in your healing room or put somewhere like in your living room where your family spends a lot of time, like add one of these little selenite unicorn horns as just a reminder to kind of live in harmony with this idea of like purification and gentleness and like ultimate like compassion and kindness. Absolutely. Oh, it's so beautiful. Unicorns do have that energy. And that's honestly probably one of my favorite all-time points in the books is in book five when they're working with the baby unicorn in the care of magical creatures class. And then it's like the the baby unicorns are pure like sparkly gold. Yeah. And you're like, what? How can something that magical possibly exist? But I think that those unicorn horns, although they're white, obviously the celebrate, it just brings that purity and that innocence of the unicorn energy through. And I don't have one yet, but I see them all the time. And I'm like, I'm going to find one that I just resonate with so perfectly. And that is definitely coming to my crystal collection very soon. <laughs> awesome. Yes. Well, I think that's probably it for our three segments. Anything else you <laughs> want to add or wrap up with? Uh, yeah, I think after two hours, I've probably gotten all my thoughts about crystals and Harry Potter out. I mean, I could go for a few more hours if you wanted, but I'm going to wrap it up just to be nice to everyone. <laughs> that was, yeah, that was probably like more than anyone thought we could ever talk about with Harry Potter. But you guys literally have no idea how much Lauren and I love Harry Potter. We could really talk about this all day. <laughs> So I guess, yeah, I guess that's it for today's show. I mean, you know, that's all just a couple hours chat. Um, I hope that you found a lot of value in this episode. And if you want more information about anything that we discussed in this episode of the podcast, you can learn more over on the website at loveandlightschool.com slash blog. We will have a nice little blog post kind of summarizing our points from this episode. So if you did enjoy the show today, of course, the biggest compliment you can give us is to leave a quick rating and review over at loveandlightschool.com slash listen. And while you're there, you can subscribe through that link as well. So you never miss a future episode. And if you do decide to take just a minute to leave a review, we'll give you our crystal chakra healing step-by-step class as a free gift. So once you've posted your review, which I know is going to be five stars for this amazing episode, (laughs) take a screenshot of it and send it to my team at support at loveandlighthealingschool.com. We'll get your class all set up for you and we'll reply back with details on how you can get started with your free crystal chakra healing step-by-step class. Perhaps you can even do a little chakra healing on those chakras that Lauren recommended for your specific Hogwarts house. So that brings us to the end of this episode of the Love and Light Live podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Levy, and this, of course, was Lauren Gandarva. Again, Lauren, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me on, Ashley. This was so fun to talk about. It was. And I'll be back with you guys in our next episode. So until then, crystal blessings. The Love and Light Live podcast is a production of the Love and Light School of Crystal Therapy. Visit us online at loveandlightschool.com.